from the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings and welcome everyone to the very first episode of the Geek at Arms podcast. Now, this is a podcast with a simple premise. We are three guys. We've been friends for a really long time. We share a love for many geeky interests. And most important of all, we share a love for the Lord our God. Well, we should probably introduce ourselves now and give you an idea of who exactly you'll be listening to. My name is James, and I work in radio broadcasting in Texas. I've got a wonderful wife, three beautiful children, and the number of geeky things that I love seems to just grow every single day. For example, I love uh, all things Star Wars, Star Trek, and Firefly-related. I love playing my Xbox. I love card games, board games, and RPGs. And my biggest hobby, though, and the thing I've sunk so much money into, is medieval reenactment and medieval combat. I love sword fighting. And reenactment has also led me to the hobby of woodworking. And, yeah, I geek out to that a lot. Woodworking. It's a geeky interest. It, well, you know what? You can geek out about anything. Exactly. So that's my short little bio. And as we do this more, and people will find out more about me. So we'll just carry on. And uh, Brian, what about you, my friend? My name is Brian. I'm a visual effects artist in Hollywood, California. I'm a board member and the web administrator for the Christian Gamers Guild. I love all things Green Arrow. I like science fiction on television, fantasy and novels, but not vice versa. And I spend a lot of time doing math, both professionally and just for fun. And uh, my name is Mike, and really what I have my geek site set on primarily is table gaming and mostly retro video gaming, mostly what my system can handle and what my pocket can afford. And uh, the third geeky interest, again, where do you go? James, you and I have crossed blades a couple of times in historical fencing. Yes, we have. That's a whole part of the medieval recreation thing is that you and I study Western martial arts, fencing, and things like that. And sometimes I've, I've gotten you, sometimes you've gotten me, and we've walked away happier and bruised. I think that I have pictures of you stabbing me. Probably, but in my defense, there's a lot of pictures out there of me stabbing a lot of people. Fair. (laughs) Well, let's head into our very first segment. This is a segment called Geek Out, and it's where we talk about what we have been geeking out to recently, currently, what we're loving right now. So which one of you two gentlemen wants to start off? I'll start. I've been geeking out most recently to the collected works of Brandon Sanderson. Uh, He wrote the final couple of volumes of The Wheel of Time after Robert Jordan died. So I enjoyed that a lot. He actually turned out to be a better author than Jordan himself. So I read his Mistborn novels, then moved on to all the other stuff that he's written in his like combined Cosmosphere overarching plot line. And then I read all the short stories that he wrote that were supposed to tie those things together. And with that knowledge, I went back, and immediately I'm rereading the Mistborn novels right now with all of that in mind. So yes, I'm read the entire Cosmere collection two times in a row. So here's a quick question for you. So that you read all of his stuff. Does this include the Alcatraz novellas or the his YA stuff? No, because those aren't are not set in his Cosmere. Uh, I'll get to those eventually, but I kind of wanted that multiverse environment, everything fresh in my mind so I could see how it all connected together first before I went and started reading uh, The Rhythmatist and uh, uh, Alcatraz, whatever that character's name was. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I'm I'm about ready to earn the ire of probably half our audience right now. It's like I read Mistborn, 
And I thought, that was nice, and I moved on to other things. Uh, it mm-hmm. was not quite my thing. He had fascinating world building. I mean, if he has a strong leg to stand on, it is world building. But Absolutely. his writing style wasn't something that really resonated with me on the first read, which is okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to like a lot of different stuff, and I, I support you in pursuing those interests. But then somebody <laughs> literally just pushed a copy of the Alcatraz into my hands and said, I know that you're looking for something light, read it. And his writing style in that, especially considering that it was uh, YA, was was so full of delightful whimsy that mm-hmm. I was just delighted every page of the way. So yeah, he you has- might also enjoy, uh, there was a follow-up to the original Mistborn trilogy called Wax and Wayne uh, that's a little bit more lighthearted and it's a more... He's grown a lot as an author since he wrote the first Mistborn novel, and I think it really shows uh, the Wax and Wayne is a lot more polished and a lot more interesting a story. Totally makes sense. Now, if I say nothing else about Brandon Sanderson, it's this. The man deserves a Hugo Award just for wrapping up the Wheel of Time series (laughs) and doing it. None of us thought it would happen. One, yes, but two, pulling all of those disparate threads that, not to speak ill of the dead, but that the original author had just put out, not so much as tying them together, but tying some of them together and just straight out cutting others off because they needed to three books ago. (laughs) I think at some point Jordan realized, I have too many characters and I can't possibly resolve all of this. And so so things like the High Lords of Tear just vanished. Yeah, exactly, Mike. He just took the easy way out. He's like, there's so much left to do. I could write 18 more books and still not resolve everything. Bleh. And death. (laughs) As for me, I've been taking it pretty easy in terms of my geeky pleasures. It's had to be kind of kind of on my decompression cycles because it's been a busy few weeks. And uh, what I decided to do was to take some geek interest and combine them with team-building exercises, which means I've been playing Super Mario Brothers Wii with the entire family. <laughs> wow. And that's, that's brave and bold, my friend, because that could either build up the family or you could be needing to see licensed counseling after this. Man, and especially when one person shoves everybody into the lava, <laughs> and then we say, "Just stay there. Just, Just... <laughs> stay safe. We can see the flag. Don't go for you went for it, and you're in the lava too." What? Why? Are, are the words "spiked tortoise shell" just considered four-letter words in your house now? Man, it's it's really the things. Oops, sorry are bad words now. (laughs) It's like, oops, sorry, instant rage. And it could be about anything. It's like, why? You were the sole person there. You were safe. Why did you bubble? Why did you bubble? It's like, like uh, do you remember playing Contra and and one person would just stop at the edge of the screen when you're trying to jump over a pit? Oh. (laughs) Oh, You know, gosh. The 30 lives code, the Konami code, is built for playing with your kid. Yeah. (laughs) Or a person that lives down the street from you that you think is your friend, but you're instantly regretting inviting them over now. (laughs) Yeah, it's playing Contra with the kids when they're young is a lot of fun because you just know you're going to program it for 30 lives. They're going to kill their way through all of theirs, and then they're going to die their way through 20 of yours. Yep. (laughs) 
I recently saw someone posted on Facebook, what classic games do you think should be remade today? And uh, some people were going really classic, like Dig Dug, Joust. And I thought Joust would be a legit one. But I almost thought about putting Contra. But I'm like, no, no, there's enough games out there that are meant for two-player, which cause enough rage hate in this universe. You don't hate the world that much. Exactly. We don't need any help. But if they did remake it, the only way it should be allowed to even out of the planning phase is if they include the up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA start code. Yeah, there's no question. Absolutely. And on top of that, make it four player. Ooh. Online. Okay, that could be interesting. I mean, still, it's going to be a retro romp, even if you update the stages, update the music, update the graphics. But still, shirtless guys in uh, red and blue pants. Uh, We'll have to add a couple more colors. (laughs) Well, we have to update the cover art as well, because the cover art was the typical 80s, early 90s, you know, beefcake, macho. Your Brian is searching for the cover art now, I can tell. <laughs> it's like uh, two guys with a machine gun. But the artist based the two characters, one off of Sylvester Stallone and the other one, like from Rambo, and because the guy looks very Rambo-esque, and the other one from Arnold Schwarzenegger, specifically from a like... a more like Val Kilmer to me. He said, yeah, but so he... <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger... And Sylvester Stallone. So we have those two guys. If it was going to be four-player, who would the other two be? That was my next question. I, I think well, that, Van Damme. Uh, Rob, Van Damme. Van Damme, good one. Good one. I don't know. Bruce Willis. There you go. I was going to say... And The Rock. No, he's too current. Yeah, Kurt Russell, maybe. Fair. Ooh, Kurt Russell would be good. I mean, if you want... Kurt Russell is an unlockable character. <laughs> I don't know. Are we? If we're going to go for old school, are we going to go Chuck Norris on this? I was going to say Chuck Norris, but when you line up 80s blockbuster you know, movies, I don't know if he was up there. Because he was going down when uh, Van Damme was coming up. Exactly. Yeah. They shared one movie together. Really? Yes. Nuh-uh. Yeah-huh. Well, there, <laughs> there is your Jean-Claude Van Damme-Bruce Lee connection, because Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris run a movie together. No kidding. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Bruce, yeah, that was one of the only ones where uh, Norris was a bad guy. And where Norris got his butt whipped. Suddenly people all across the internet now are looking up YouTube. <laughs> Bruce yeah. Lee, Chuck Norris. What, uh, right now they're Jean-Claude to, Van Damme. Yeah, that's the thing. Is they're trying to figure out whether or not they were actually together in some movie. I'll I can, let you guys look that up. <laughs> so anything else, Mike? I like how we went from family Mario Kart to 80s beefcake video game cover art. <laughs> what, you don't think that's a logical uh, connection there? Well, you know, when I look at Toadstool on a go-kart, I think, you know, the movie Predator and Get to the Chopper. It Joppa. just makes you want to see Schwarzenegger take his shirt off, right? We're coming back to shrooms <laughs> real fast. We are. So, All right, so James, what have you been geeking out about? My geek out recently has been actually twofold. A couple of months ago, I'd been saving up my dimes, my nickels, and quarters for about a year, and I bought myself a custom longsword for fencing from a company called Castile Armory. They make really great weapons, but their focus is custom weapons for reenactment, for for fighting. You and I, we primarily fight in a group called the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism, that has kingdoms and groups all over the U.S. and all over the world, but... One area. I mostly of it. just fight with the hobos on Hollywood Boulevard. And, well, you need a long sword for that too. Yeah. Is there any problem that you have that the long sword doesn't make better? I mean, getting through the TSA security. Besides, dropping your kids off at daycare. No, nope. I stand corrected. I take the long sword there too. <laughs> so a great company. I ordered this long sword for them because there's a an aspect of SCA fencing, 
And when I say fencing, don't think like people wearing white jackets with foils and epes and sabers that you would see on the Olympics. Think, guys, the masks are the same for safety purposes, but in 16th century garb, the safety equipment is on underneath with period-style swept-hilt rapiers going at it tooth and nail trying to survive. And that's a little closer approximation of what SCA rapier is like. But there's an aspect of it called cut and thrust, where instead of just stabbing, we're going for the stab, but we're also going for a percussive hit, the cut. A little bit different safety regulations with that. The blades have to be of a different style. You have to wear a little bit more safety equipment. And for the past couple of years, I've been having a lot of elbow pain. So that makes fighting with a rapier, even one that's only like, you know, less than three pounds, you know, you've got that out holding it at arm's length and doing a lot of stabbing motions, and that gets real old real quick. So Repetitive stress injuries don't care what century it is. Exactly. <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, modern medicine hasn't been a whole lot of help, and so I doubt period medicine would either. They would look at me and say, have you tried abrasive leeches? And I would say, no, no, I haven't. I'm sorry, my HMO doesn't cover that. They have a generic. They have a generic. <laughs> it's mostly just ticks. <laughs> it's an old snail that we cracked it out of its shell. Put it under your tongue for a fortnight. <laughs> so since the rapier is becoming more and more difficult, I wanted to give cut and thrust a try because they allow long swords as part of it. Well, so, the five pounds there, but still you distribute that over two hands. Well, I tried one out, and I discovered that with some of the movements, it was putting a lot less torque on my elbow. Totally makes sense. And I was doing different movements with it, and it wasn't just the thrust, and it worked a lot better. That I totally was, makes sense. So I saved up my money, bought a nice one. I asked them to base it off of a 15th century piece that was fished out of the River Thames and is currently sitting in the Museum of London. Take that right in your oak shot right there. Exactly. <laughs> uh, another reason I wanted that specific style was because I picked up a book called Medieval Longsword from a Western martial arts specialist named Guy Windsor. And it's about, I've got it right here, actually, because, of course, you can all see it. <laughs> But it's The Medieval Longsword by Guy Windsor, Mastering the Art of Arms, and it's about his study of the tactics and techniques of Fiore, who wrote this treatise in 1410. It's absolutely fantastic. I've been watching his videos on YouTube, and it just it feels great. It flows. He has an exercise that he does for people who just need to get the feel of the longsword called the Farfalla de Ferro, uh, which is, of course, as you two gentlemen know... <laughs> is Italian for the butterfly of iron. And I've been practicing that. And it feels weird. For the first time, I'm actually learning from book and YouTube video instead of someone in front of me teaching me. It's been an odd experience, but I'm finally starting to get it down, getting the flow of the sword, getting the movements, and just absolutely loving working on something that has been studied for 600 years. Well, one of the benefits that you have of going to somebody like Guy Windsor is that you actually do have it grounded, first of all, not only in somebody who is well-studied, who is a translator of these texts, but also it's going back to Fiore, who is, this is one of the Italian masters. Mm -hmm. And so you actually do have it grounded in some historicity, which you may not necessarily get with your fencing group. Because the reality is, is that once you have a bunch of people getting together, putting on their safety masks and putting on their gear, there is some level of, hey, I learned this from a guy who said that he learned it from a guy, and this worked really well. <laughs> and you have what was actually taught and practiced in the 15th or 16th century. And even if, even if you do go back to the original source material, you're still getting a little bit of a 
guesswork on our part mm-hmm. because this was not designed to be recreated. This was designed to be directly communicated. But at least when you have, going back to Guy Windsor, going back to Fiore, you actually have some better grounding in historicity than you might get with your local fencing group if they are not as dedicated to the study as they are to the practice. For some, it's you get in, you put on the mask, and you get a person across you saying, all right, I'm going to teach you this trick. And that's what you're getting. You're getting a trick. You're getting a means of staying alive, of beating the other person. But what you're getting is, I don't want to say thug fighting, but it's, you know, it, it works. For a lot of people, it works. But one reason that you and I do this is because we also love the historic aspect of it, of studying period swordplay. And, you know, that's the thing, is that when uh, when they were practicing this in the 15th and 16th century, it was less gamesmanship. And more a, I'm learning this so I can survive. Because either it might come up in a duel, or in defense for your life, or in war. Or tournament. Or or tournament. Take a look at uh, judicial battles. Very good point. There is a, uh, there's actually in Tallhofer, I believe, there is a set of techniques for a judicial battle where a person is half buried in a hole and is wielding a sock with a stone in it, and the other person has a club. The funny thing is, is that the person with a sock is, sorry, the person with the sock and the stone is outside the hole. The person with the club is inside the hole. And what that hole is for is a handicap because the person with the sock and the stone is a woman, presumably the judicial battle with a husband and wife. And just as a bit of advice for all you family guys out there, if you've ever hacked your wife off so badly that she's going to get a stone and a sock and a judge, you might just want to think about saying, I'm sorry. You know, forget <laughs> forget divorce court on TV. I want to see Judge Judy officiating this. <laughs> I want to see Judge Judy do this. Just, <laughs> you know what? As ornery as she is, she'd knock a dude's head clean off. Hey, I've been practicing this stuff for <laughs> years. She will take me out. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> So uh, medieval longsword fencing, that has been one thing that I've been geeking out to recently and will continue to be geeking out to it. I'm looking forward to actually getting good enough and finding someone to fight against, someone who either has a longsword or someone in our local group who has cut and thrust equipment so I can practice it. So maybe even go to a tournament at some point in the future, in which case I'll give a report on how quickly I died. Well, that's the way it always is with the tournaments. Usually is. But something else that I've been geeking out to recently is about a month ago, I had a friend tune me into something fun on Kickstarter. A Kickstarter for, and you both have played Munchkin before, am I correct? In one of Mm -hmm. its iterations or another? Munchkin, let me think. How many versions do you own in your house? Oh, at least three difference with, with some expansions on each of them. In fact, I think the first time I played Munchkin was with the two of you. I believe that. I believe it. There's primary munchkin. There's the main one. Let's see. There's zombie munchkin. There's space munchkin. There's Cthulhu munchkin. There is, did I say superhero one? There's, yeah, there's super munchkin. There's munchkin impossible. There's munchkin foo. There's the good, the bad, the munchkin. There's the, gosh, I cannot think of the name of the piratey one, but it doesn't matter if they can, oh, axe cop munchkin even. This is the thing is that (laughs) they can tack on an adjective. They will put Munchkin onto the end of it, and they will sell it. And the reason why is because they like money, and that's okay. (laughs) Well, we have a brand new one that the good people at Steve Jackson Games put out a Kickstarter for, and it's Munchkin Shakespeare. 
Okay, I have not seen that. I went ahead and joined it. 20 bucks got you the base game. I was like, yeah, that's legit. I'll do that. Not a bad price. Exactly, and they're already so beyond their goal, it's not even funny now. But looking at this thing, no, for 20 bucks, I absolutely need to have this game. This is fantastic. And I cannot wait, because they can be very clever. Laugh out loud clever with some of the cards. I mean, we all know the mechanics. We've known the mechanics since the first time we played. It's mostly a game of, of flavor text, laughing at that, and just totally screwing your friends over on that ever bloodthirsty battle to get to level 10 first. Oh my gosh, I have made and lost so many friends over that game. And that's okay. <laughs> you know, this is the thing about Kickstarter, is with Steve Jackson... Okay, there's a lot of great things and a lot of iffy things about Kickstarter. I will say this. With Steve Jackson games, there's no reason not to if you really like what the product is going to be. We know that this is a solid a solid institution. They have been a game developer. Not only have they been a game developer, they have developed this game in 1,800 different variations. So you know what you're going to get. It's not like they're pitching a concept and you you know, might think it sounds like a great concept and then there's poor mechanics. No, the mechanics are tried and tested and true. You're getting the good flavor text and you're getting the gags that will give you the laughs. So this really is what Kickstarter is. Much as people dislike when more established figures start to use Kickstarter, from a buyer perspective, if you want it, there's no reason not to back it. I mean, when has Steve Jackson ever not delivered on a product since the Secret Service stole his computers? <laughs> Wait, did that actually happen? Uh, yes. Yes, that actually Look it happened. Up. Yeah. He was doing a... <laughs> he was... Let's give him the short version of this. Since he was doing Cyberpunk, they were concerned that he was developing a hacking training manual. And so the Secret Service came in and raided Steve Jackson Games, made off with all of the computers, and left him in the lurch. There was a lawsuit. Holy cow. Yeah. Steve won. I hope so. Yeah. I hope he got the judge involved in the game and said, this is why I'm being sued. <laughs> oh, wow. So you actually made some interesting points about with this game company, with Steve Jackson Games, you know what you're getting. You're not getting a concept. You're going to get a good game that you're already semi-familiar with. It's going to be funny. It's going to be enjoyable. And you're getting a good product for a decent price. And crowdfunding as a whole is an interesting concept. You know, it's been around for a while now. It's not going to go anywhere. When I first saw Kickstarter, the whole aspect of it is like, wait, I'm going to pay you money for something that doesn't exist yet in the hopes that you get enough money to make it and then send it to me. I don't know about that. And I've done a few Kickstarters by now. I did a game that you recommended to me, Brian. And then I've done a couple of graphic novels for webcomics that I really love. There's a webcomic called Girl Genius. Are you guys familiar with that one? familiar with it. Gotcha. Heard of it, haven't read it. Fantastic. It's a whole steampunk world. Even though they're available for free on to read online, I wanted to support the people who do it and wanted the graphic novel version. So my wife and I, we started buying them up and then after we ran out, they started doing Kickstarters to finance printing more and those have been great. They've never missed a goal and they've always put out a great graphic novel, great quality. But you spend a few minutes looking on any crowdfunding site and you're going to see games or more than games you're going to find projects that look good look fun look interesting you're going to look for stuff that's not for you but maybe good for somebody else and then you're going to find other stuff that just is someone being lazy and making a blatant cash grab potato salad 
Exactly. Well, the blatant <laughs> cash grab, at least you're giving money to something that you th- you're giving five bucks because you think it's funny. And if that's worth five mm-hmm. bucks to you, then great. That's five bucks well spent. Uh, the thing that I find troubling about Kickstarter is the fact that there is a very low threshold for somebody accepting your money. Legally, all they have to do is put forth a good faith effort to delivering the product. They can fail to deliver that product so long as they are putting forth enough of a good faith effort. There have been a lot of Kickstarters that have gone to a certain point and then collapsed because of the challenges. This may be because the person is not a savvy business person. They have not calculated the hidden costs, and there are some projects. Look for – just do a search for companies that kickstarted themselves to death. They didn't think about their shipping weight and the fact that they were shipping to Japan and then (laughs) said, here's one of the bonus unlockables is pewter pieces. And so you've got 100 pounds of figures that you're sending to Japan for 10 bucks, and now you have to cough up that shipping or you have to fold. So the the threshold that you get is uh, is legally is pretty low. Uh, second of all is concept. There is a great concept for a game. My wife backed it. It looked like it was strong. The art was strong. The pitch was good. And you know some of the mechanics are you know are interesting. I mean the play is funny, but it's not a solid game, which it certainly could have been with just a few more tweaks. Yeah, and even. Even companies that have made games in the past can fall into that. I backed the uh, Traveler 5, and when it finally arrived, it's not a complete game. You can't play that with the book. I mean, it's not finished. It's not very well organized. And you kind of got to expect that because Traveler has never been terribly well organized. But a lot of people were really angry at the quality level of that game. Personally, I thought... I got a lot of good stuff to use in my uh, classic Traveler campaign, so I didn't consider it money wasted. But even when someone has done this before, someone makes games kind of for a living, I'm sure he must have a uh, an actual job because I doubt Traveler pays the bills. Uh, but even with that, all, all that experience, I would still consider the Traveler 5th Edition Kickstarter the delivered product something of a failure. You know, along those same lines, I recently did a Kickstarter for the brand new edition of the 7th Sea game. Once again, not something that they're probably making a living on, but I dropped down 60 bucks for it. Because for that much, I would get a full color copy of the primary game book, and I would also get PDFs of all the rest of it. Nice. Oh, and, and, and all of the first edition books that were out. I got the book in, gorgeous beautiful they did a lot of things to kind of streamline the the rule system combat and everything else that i was very happy with i was very pleased with what came out unfortunately not everyone is like that you talk about video games a few minutes ago i can remember i was reading online about this one company that wanted to put out a video game that they offered this they offered screenshots a little bit of video of gameplay People were just astonished that this game was going to be as good as it was. Really happy with the mechanics of it. It got like 160% of its budget. And they said, we've got all this money now. We're going to make it even better. It got delayed. They delayed again. Delayed again. And finally, eight months to a year after they had originally promised it, what came out was closer to a clone of Diablo. Oh, no. Than what they had originally promised. 
and people were livid. There were even lawsuits citing the original campaign saying, you promised us this, we paid you, you delivered this, you lied. Mm, how'd they do on their lawsuit? I do not remember off the top of my head. If you're hacking off your consumer base that bad, it's still a failure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think a lot of people look at Kickstarter as a marketplace, say, hey, I'm going to send this money over and I'm going to get something and I think I know what it's going to be. But I've kind of always looked at Kickstarter as more of a, uh, you see something and you think, I wish that this could exist in the world. The very first project that I backed, um, which was not successful, unfortunately, uh, was a guy trying to hire a symphony orchestra to record several classical pieces and then release them into the public domain. Now, the backers weren't going to get something of any value because, you know, they're going to get a CD of of the music, but it was public. It was going to be public domain. They could have just downloaded it later. But I thought, you know, this music, we need to have recordings of this music in the public domain that people can use, people can build on, hosts the planets. You can't find a public domain recording of that. The music has been, it belongs to the people, but every recording is copyrighted. And I thought that was a wonderful way to use Kickstarter. It was not unfortunately successful, but that's how I've looked at everything that I've backed. Uh, not as, hey, I'm buying something on Kickstarter, but as, hey, this is a project that I think is worthwhile, something I think I think needs to exist, and so I'm going to put my money behind it, even if I don't care about getting the product, the product at the end. That's an interesting um, way of looking at it. I've used it as a wary marketplace, as you've said, but I think that the, the philosophical drive between I wish this could this could exist and it doesn't yet exist would be a far far nobler use of the of the medium or of the of the service and of course the the one i backed most recently is yukon salon a very hairy game a card game in which you are a hairdresser for lumberjacks and bears i i recently joined you on that one <laughs> and i am already in love with this game you know what i love the sound of it Again, it's one of those things that I want to play it or see it played before I put my money down on it. Yeah, but I don't care even even if it's a bad game. I just think that's a bold enough and funny enough concept that that needs to be in the world. And so I put $15 toward it. I did the same just for like the, the core game. And for nothing else, I'm loving the artwork on the cards. Mm -hmm. Like the late 19th century burly but surprisingly well-groomed mountain men who look like they came straight down out of Yukon. See, and also having artwork that you can fix your eyes on, I think really makes a big difference as to whether or not I want to back one of these projects. Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, there's an artist who I will back, or I have backed just about every time I've seen one of his Kickstarters. And if you guys are into maps for role-playing, or for miniatures play, especially if you still like the Star Wars miniatures, which, you know, the Wizards of the Coast, it's out of print, but still a good game. Maps of Mastery still releases maps that are compatible and has just enough of the Star Wars feel that it's good for the role-playing games, it's good for the minis. And uh, Christopher West always does a fantastic job. And yes, that was a shameless plug. Christopher <laughs> West, Maps of Mastery check it out as brian and i are both going there on our laptops oh yeah i've seen some of this come through the uh the cartographers guild yes oh wow and he's got like all sorts of different collections too yeah distant outposts battle stations deep vistas mass transit 
I'm liking this. This is, you know what, it, it goes even deeper than that. Like, there is something about, I mean, it's crazy, because, okay, have you ever been playing a role-playing game, and you say, okay, well, we're going to hit the stairs, and we're going to take the stairwell, and then there you are, and you say, okay, next level, and then you throw yourself somewhere on the map, where you say, okay, we'll say the stairs are right there. If you take one of his maps, and you say, within a certain series, and you say, I'm going to hit the stairs, what you can do is put yourself in the stairwell, take your minis off, switch to the next map, lay, the, uh, lay your pieces down, and the stairwell lines up with the stairwell of the floor below. I do love consistency. Uh, he's great at it. Have you used a lot of his products? I have used many of his products. Not terribly long ago when we were playing, I don't necessarily want to name names, we were playing a sort of uh, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey game, and he sort of had these uh, dimensional time ship tiles, and they worked remarkably well together. Now, do you print these out, or do you just have them on, on like a tablet or something like that? You have options, because what he'll do is, depending on your backing option, you can just get the PDF, and you can print them, and that's expensive. Or you can back it for a higher level, and you get these nice, I think it's 24 by 36-inch full-color double-sided poster maps. Or for the tiles, you get them in their whatever dimensions that they list them and print it out on cardstock and ship to your house. And that's more expensive, but cheaper than if you're trying to print them off at home. And you get the PDFs if you back. That's cool. They're also sold in his web store, which you don't get the PDF backup copy for that. How often does he do Kickstarters? He does between, I think he does at least three a year. Because yeah. the few times that I've GM'd, that's one of my weak points. I'm just like, I'm not going to make a map, but listen to my voice as I <laughs> explain to you and describe the scene. And I'm just going to rely on all of you to remember everything I've said. Yeah, yeah. I like using his maps. Do you know what? I will use a whiteboard when I can. And if nothing that I have seems to fit it, I'll use a whiteboard and just kind of draw lines. But if I've got one of these really nice-looking maps which seems to set the scene already, then I would be foolish not to use it. See, I would use a whiteboard, but by order of the state of Texas, I'm not allowed to draw. (laughs) (laughs) That's nothing I can do. Court order. Don't ask me how it happened. It's just better for everyone if we forget it. Files are sealed anyway. (laughs) I'm really trying to imagine this case, and I – yeah, we need to cut to somebody else. (laughs) I would like to say one more thing on the, the topic of crowdfunding uh, is that the, the paradigms such as Kickstarter and Indiegogo GoFundMe aren't the only way crowdfunding is being done. There's a, a little phone app called Givling that I've been uh, using re- recently, which is it's a little trivia game. And it sends you after every game you play, it sends you an ad and they're using their revenue to pay off student loans. No 10 way. loans at a time. They've completely paid off three loans so far. There's also things, uh, the microloan organizations like Kiva uh, or a couple others. We are giving a very small uh, loan to a craftsperson or a tradesperson in a third world country. It could be like they're getting $25 and that's enough for them to buy two cows and start a dairy farm. And then there's Patreon. I back a couple of different artists on Patreon. Again, not in hopes of getting something from them, but just because these are people who I think... If they can get enough money to support themselves and just make art, the world is a better place for that. And, of course, I've got the disposable income to be able to do that, so it's easier. We need to say, give to so-and-so on Patreon. In you know, you guys' case, you're family men, so you may not have that disposable income. 
But for those of us who do, there are other things other than, hey, I want to send some money this way so I can get something. I've read about Patreon. I've seen several people discuss it online. I have not been there. I don't know much about it. But like you said, it's basically, I like what you do. I'm going to be a patron for you and support you through this website by sending you a little mm-hmm. bit of a little bit of cash, either a one-time gift or on a monthly basis. Right. right on. I support two people at $10 a month each on Patreon. Nice. Cool. That was all. Could move on. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I say unless there was something else we were wanting to discuss, I say we head to uh, to the future. I say that we should go to the future. I like it as well. <laughs> Let us go to the future. So this is a segment where we talk about things that are coming up that we are really excited about. It could be a game, could be an event, anything at all. Just whatever we love that's geeky that's coming up that we're excited about. For myself, I've talked about this with both of you, but coming up in just a couple of weeks, the next chapter of the Mass Effect video games comes out, Mass Effect Andromeda, and I could not be more excited for this video game. Awesome. I played the first three. I didn't play them when they first came out. Uh, I knew about the Mass Effect games, and when the first one came out, I didn't even own an Xbox 360. So I had a poor man's Xbox. And, you know, had to make do with my peasant games like Halo and Halo 2. But my wife and I, we did play a lot of Baldur's Gate. Those games were on there. They were two-player local, and they were fantastic. But when I did get an Xbox 360, about a couple of years later, my wife bought me the video game Skyrim for Christmas. Mm. And I played Skyrim for a year solid. No breaks, nothing else, just that because it was that much fun. And not even potty breaks. You had a Not even cake. potty breaks. We went through so many couches. So by the end of it, beating the main storyline, did the Civil War, I did all the DLCs, and after that, I was kind of needing a different taste in my mouth. I was needing a different flavor of video game. So I thought, you know, we'll go the polar opposite. I'll do something science fiction-y. So I was looking around at different games, and my wife's brother had given me, like, a small box of Xbox games because he'd rather see me play them than take them to GameStop and get four bucks for it. For the box. For the entire box, exactly. And in there was Red Dead Redemption. There was, oh, what other great video games were in there? I'm guessing Mass Effect. Mass Effect 1 and 2 was in there, <laughs> but there were others which were arguably just as good or even better. Portal was in there. Holy uh, crap, that is still such a great game. Like, that mm-hmm. has been worth so many years of replay value. And Portal was in there, and it was a bundle. It was Portal and Half-Life 2. And I had never played Half-Life before. I didn't get what the hype was about, and I got it then. I didn't play those until later, but once I did, I was like, man, these are so good. But See, I didn't start playing Portal until after Jonathan Colton showed up in my Pandora. Ah, gotcha. But, uh, it was a very slippery slope after that. <laughs> I played Portal enough. I really haven't played any of Portal 2, but I played Portal enough that we would hang out to this one friend's house, and on her cell phone... She would have, as her ringtone, was the audio of one of the little sentry bots going, Are you still there? Brilliant. And we'd be there late at night, and from a dark room, clear as can day, I'd hear, Are you still there? And I'm like, crud. You need to change your pants. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, I need to find some cover. I need to duck around a corner or something, because I'm about to die. But going back to Mass Effect, I'm like, well, I'll give these a try. I heard they were good. So I played the first one, had it beaten two weeks. Played the second one, once again, beaten two weeks because they were that good. Instantly went out after that to the used game store, picked up the third game, had that beaten a couple of weeks as well. After that, I started over with number one and did the whole three again. Nice. And 
So with this coming out, I'm reading up on what it's about. Of course, there's videos online everywhere about the gameplay and the universe. Now, one thing that I am trying to decide whether to do or not is do the whole pre-order. I'm trying to decide if that actually is worth it or not. Because these days, you can't have a video game out without them pre-ordering it. Any video game, whether it's Mass Effect or whether it's the latest Call of Duty or Barbie Equestrian Fun Time, they'll do a pre-order for that as well. And I keep on struggling with myself. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll pre-order it. It'll be, you know, 60 bucks. And okay, oh, you're going to give me some armor and maybe a skin for my little car that I drive around in. Is it worth it? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, worth is actually at this point completely subjective. Uh, do you have the money? Do you want it badly enough to surrender that money for knowing that you <laughs> will have it the day of? And if it's worth it, then, you know, subjectively, sure, sure, you want it that bad. As for me, I'll play it 10 years later. <laughs> That's usually what I do. I haven't played Mass Effect 3 yet. When it's for sale on Steam? When I can give Gabe Newell five bucks for playing it in, for playing the same two weeks, except so many years later, and, you know, nobody to talk about how great this game is because they're also done with it and playing the next Call of Duty. Fair enough. With my budget, and not counting that I bought a sword earlier this year, <laughs> I can buy definitely one, maybe two video games a year. And so I have to be very selective about what they're going to be. Obviously, this is going to be a, one of the two or just the one. I want to get it now. See, I don't have to be nearly so selective because I just, you know, I got a great deal. I paid 10 bucks for Metal Gear just a couple months ago. Wait, the first one for the NES? Yeah. Okay, then. All right. He prefaced this uh, whole episode saying he liked uh, classic games. That is true. I just didn't think that it would cost you 10 bucks still. Well, you have to ship it. I mean, it's a plastic cartridge. You oh, you bought TV. an original copy. Oh, yeah. Oh, you didn't say that. I thought oh, you were saying yeah. like you paid 10 bucks on the Steam store for it. Oh, can you buy even NES games on a Steam? I don't think so. I doubt it, but oh, that's no. on the old NES. That's awesome. And this is, this is why we need more lead in children's toys. The soldering on my <laughs> NES is still good. It still works. So thankfully, you didn't have to shell out any cash hoping to get the NES Classic when it came out. Oh, you know, I think that that sounds like a great product, but it's it's not for me. Fair enough. <laughs> There's actually a store that opened up not too far away from us that you would love. Like, their whole thing is like classic video games. Nice. I follow them on Facebook. They have so many NES cartridges. It almost makes me wish that I still had my old console. So I could, like, break it out. I'm like, okay, you know, Michaela, boys, here's Super Mario Brothers. Here's Super Mario Brothers 3. What about Super Mario Brothers 2? We don't talk about that one. <laughs> That's not in there. Don't worry about it. I the Japanese about don't it, have a word for two. You know what? I'm going to be again. I'm going to I'm gonna earn so much hatred, but that's okay. Two, I think, was actually my favorite of the series. Really? Yeah, we can come back to that some other day. That's a subject for another show right there. Absolutely. <laughs> and do you know what? You and I will disagree with each other, but it won't be the first thing and it won't be the last. You know, here's the thing that I owned that game. I played it, and it was only after I was done with it that I really decided I didn't care for that that much. I played that so many times in my childhood. Like, the replay value on 2 was more than 3 for me as a kid. I may need to revisit it, but I'll revisit it before we do that show. Fair enough. <laughs> I didn't play. I didn't like that so much, but I did love the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles video game. That one that was pure death on your thumbs. I'm signing uh, off The now. side-scroller on the NES or the, the like isometric one? 
the isometric one. Ah, uh, that was a good one. Yes. Okay. But back to the future. Mass Effect coming out on the 21st of this month. Cannot wait. And I've told Joy, I'm like, I love you. I love my children. I will talk to all of you in a couple of months. <laughs> Forget the spring and summer. That's done. I'll see you come fall. All right, Brian, what about you, mate? You know, I can't really say that there's a whole lot that I'm I'm really eager for right now. I'm looking forward to Ghost in the Shell at the end of the month. But other than that, nothing oh. nothing's really getting me excited. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that anything with Scarlett Johansson is worth getting excited about. Fine actress. Fair so, enough. You know, I... <laughs> As far as, like, comparing to the original, which was, honestly, that was the first anime I ever watched. It was the second one that I watched. I watched Akira before I saw that one. Gotcha. Oh, man. Uh, and I didn't have enough grounding in Japanese storytelling tropes and and their visual language to really get it. Uh, that first time through, I watched it again maybe 10 years later and understood a little bit a little bit better. Uh, but even that's been long enough ago that I don't really remember a whole lot other than just a few images that stuck in my head. I know that that's one of those movies that we're going to do a live-action version. You know, they've been talking <laughs> about it, Akira for forever. Oh, yeah. But I kind of feel like we've cinematic technology, and Brian, you know more, way more about this than I do. We've kind of hit the level where they could do it justice. And not just do it justice, but actually make it look as good as the original. Well, I don't know exactly how our modern technology is going to cope with the fact that it ends with some sort of flesh amoeba there. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll give it a shot if you guys say so. Well, when at this point, there's nothing that you can think of that can't be put on the screen with digital technology. The only real hang-up we have right now is realistic fully cg human characters rogue one showed us that we're not quite there yet if ilm can't get uh, grand moff tarkin looking perfect then nobody can it's interesting because the first time that i saw that was was when the last tron movie came out mm, and you had yeah. old jeff bridges and young jeff bridges and i thought that what they did with you know the, with the character clue i thought that looked pretty good yeah, well, you had an advantage with Clue in that he wasn't actually human. Yeah, he was a digital if he character. A little if he looked a little computer-generated, that's okay, because he the character was computer-generated. Can't always get away with that with other characters. Very true. And there were a couple of times that I was watching it when, okay, that's not real whatsoever. How his face moved when he talked or something he did, mm -hmm. yeah, it's fake. micro-expressions. Exactly. But there were other times I'm watching it, and it looked like somehow they had brought young Jeff Bridges back to play this character. I mean, I thought it was that good. Did they do as good a job as with Tarkin in Rogue One? Um, I would say, honestly, I'd put that one at not quite 60-40, but more like 70-30. 70% not really, 30%, okay, not bad. It was the cheekbones, I think, that messed it up for me. The fact that they were sharp enough that you could break glass over it? Well, no, his cheekbones were really sharp. It was, they were slightly too wide. And what about Leia at the end? What did you think of her? Leia, uh, I thought, was largely successful. Now, see, I thought completely opposite. You know, really? when the camera pans around and you see her underneath the hood and you can see they have made a digital Carrie Fisher. At first, I thought, OK, is she going to talk? Because right now she looks like a porcelain doll. <laughs> I think the fact that they had her screen time so short was to their advantage. It didn't give mm -hmm. you quite enough time to think about it. Good point. Right. And I'm wondering now they did that. Are we going to see more of that in the future? Oh, absolutely, we are. Uh, do you mean specifically with Carrie Fisher, or do you mean in general? I hope not Carrie Fisher, because I'm uh, kind of... They, 
they said they were not going to do a CG Carrie Fisher for the next Star Wars movie. What, right. Well, they I think have... for number eight that they actually like got all of her scenes filmed. It was for number nine that they mm-hmm. were wanting to have her in. Right. They said that they have every intention of respecting her rest and respecting her family. And the, from what I understand, the current plan is not to use her image. Cool. Well, how long do you think it's going to be, though, until we have a movie that the background is not computer animated, but they just computer animate all the actors? The opposite of what we do now. Where exactly. All the backgrounds are uh, CG. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, um, they're already doing that to some degree. I mean, the, the thing is that the reason why Pixar uses these cartoony looking characters is because they don't have to worry about the Uncanny Valley. They've mm-hmm. already tried it with the Polar Express to try to get it stylized, but lifelike characters. There's been a number of times when they've done, oh gosh, there was some Viking movie that tanked because everybody thought it was too creepy to look at. Uh, was that the Beowulf one? That must have been it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're already trying. How long is it till we get there? It's either to the point where we can suspend our disbelief or they find some way to pole vault over the Uncanny Valley. Nine years. That's Nine my years? Estimate. Nine years. I'm going to say 15 minutes. <laughs> that's at that point Somewhere, I'm but... giving up I'm reveling in that uncanny valley you know I'm looking forward to it and I'm not looking forward to it I'm not looking forward to it because of just how for years and years how silly it's going to look and how much people are going to gripe about it but I'm also looking forward to it because now you can start getting some really outlandish and outrageous matchups on the screen together hmm. so, give, give me an example of one of these outlandish matchups alright so for years and years, people wanted to see a movie that had both Alien and Predator in it, or Batman and Superman together. Let's just throw common sense out the window, and let's have... Adam West and Christopher Reeve. Together at last. You know, <laughs> let's have Mel Gibson in Mad Max versus Mel Gibson in Braveheart and Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. Yes, those three together in a wacky, buddy cop style time travel movie. Wow, will we're going to be directed have to have a by Mel Brooks or Terry Gilliam. No, Mel Brooks will be in it. He'll be playing the uh, the the mayor. He'll be the mayor character in Blazing Saddles, Harumph and No Pants and All. While these other digital versions of himself go out and do various stunts. All the while, circling above the main spaceship from Spaceballs will be squaring off against Darth Vader's Super Star Destroyer, while the USS Enterprise looks on. There is some company right now jotting down notes and getting their lawyers on how to dodge the lawsuits just to do this on a budget of of less than $69. You know, if Marvel can (laughs) actually get, I forget if it's Sony or Fox, but can get them to give up Spider-Man for a movie, anything's possible. I have absolutely no rational response to that. <laughs> I, I, I must concede, sir, that if they manage to do that, then anything is possible. <laughs> I just imagine a board meeting. It's like, so can we use Spider-Man? No. Come on. Give us enough money, you can. <laughs> come on. Go, come on. You throw enough zeros at them, and they're like, okay, here you go. So, Mike, what about you, my friend? What are you looking forward to in the future? Uh, nothing. I'm just, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> nothing at all? Kind of bored life right now? I, I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at, I got something on my schedule. Oh, yeah. There's this badge that I have here for PAX East. Oh, um, nice. kind of thinking of going to that, seeing how I've been waiting for it for like six you know, months. If you have the time, if you can fit it in. Absolutely. So, yeah. If you didn't, 
Brian and I would catch flights out there for no other reason. We'd, we'd show up at your doorstep, each with a pair of pool noodles, and beat the crud out of you. It is really my one vacation. Like, it is, like I, I do family vacations. You've got to be a family man. That is, this is my one, I don't want to say take my brain off the hook, but my one entirely self-indulgent day of the year. And that's it. Gotcha. And I, I, I absolutely love it for that. Uh, sometimes I share it with a friend. Sometimes I go by myself. But from even from the point of queuing up with 40,000 other people and throwing some beach balls around and waiting until the gates of that Disneyland of bright, flashing video games and more subdued table games and the seminars that they have all throughout the day, uh, it's just an absolute fantastic part of it is just revelry in the interest. And the other part is being part of some of these talks that are some meaningful dialogue about problems that exist within the industry, sociologically, equity-wise, or just trying to uh, further your games to the next level or seeing how games are being used in therapy. It's really absolutely fascinating. Now, I'm familiar with cons like Comic-Con, Gen Con, and Dragon Con and others. PAX. What is their focus? What is their thing? What do you go there for? The focus of their thing is you. Okay. They're not there to announce new products. They're not there for the developers to showcase something that they have coming up. On you know, sometimes they do show, you know, they they show what they've got coming up on the horizon. But there's no big announcements. There's not a focus on the press presence. The focus is just creating an environment where gamers can be together with gamers and just enjoy the heck out of it. And so you do have a, a more muted cosplay experience than with something like Comic-Con, but there is plenty of sci-fi and game-oriented cosplay. There's tournaments for table games. There are tournaments for video games. You get to see a little bit of what's up and coming on the horizon without the expectation of new ground-shaking announcements. And the displays to lesser extent, the giveaways, and being able to sit down and have FaceTime with the developers about what they're doing in these sometimes hour-long seminars. So you're going around, walking around an expo hall, just soaking it in for hours upon hours. Very cool. What are some of the specific things that you're looking forward to or you're hoping to see there? You know, this year, usually I have at least three panels that I'm looking forward to. And you can't really do more than three during a day because you got to queue up for an hour where you make friends with the person who's beside you because, you know, you're going to meet you're going to meet Thor. Um, and that's awesome. Or you're going to meet Deadpool. And Deadpool. One, one of many, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Or six of them together. Um <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago, I had had an hour long conversation with a, with a femme Thor who was just the most awesome person in the world. And then, you know, you never see them again. But so there is that camaraderie that you're all there for the same purpose, which I think makes a lot for the atmosphere. Um, but the uh, the panels uh, this year, there are so many that I'm interested in, but nothing that I'm really driving to. Oh, yeah, I got to go see that. Um, there's one on. What is what is the the black girl experience in video gaming? Like, can I really use my you know can I really use my avatar that looks like me? Because it's so so they say it's a different gaming experience. People treat you differently when you know you're not one of the dudes. And you know sometimes I've seen that in multiplayer, and that's not cool. 
but you get to listen to a bit about what is her experience like. And I think that's important. There are other things that you're there for, like how do you create better gameplay environments for RPGs? Absolutely fantastic panel. I remember years ago hearing about PAX. I don't know how many years it's been going on, but wasn't it started up by a couple of guys who did a webcomic? Actually, the PAX stands for Penny Arcade Expo. Penny Arcade, that's right. Okay. So, yeah, you've got those two figures, and they're always there. Uh, but it's uh, it's bigger than them. Uh, okay. I I don't really you know I don't really read Penny Arcade. Uh, I I think that the creators are probably okay with that. That I'm just coming there to be with the camaraderie of the gamers and see what's going on in the industry. Cool. It sounds like it's kind of what people wished they were getting when they went to some of the larger cons. You know, I've heard some different takeaways because at something like Gen Con. It is pretty much just opening up. This is what I've heard. I've not been. You're just opening up the warehouse, and anybody can come play. And so you're getting that real feel of of a uh, a meeting between equals. At PAX, it is not like that because it is definitely there where you can't bring your own unless you're willing to pay for the booth space, unless you're willing to pay for everything that comes along with it. So you are getting high-quality experiences and at a price, the price that you're probably cutting off some smaller entities, but also that you're getting a more Disneyland version of the experience. Interesting. Is PAX pretty much the one that you have made it to over the years, or have you been to any of the other ones? No, PAX has been it. I was introduced because I hosted some people, and I let them sleep in our guest room, and they said, as a thank you, we got you a Saturday pass. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, you know, whatever. I've never been to a con. (gasps) (laughs) You walk in, and the clouds part. The sunshine comes down. The angels sing, which is weird because you're inside a building. I I cry a little every time. (laughs) Living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area comes with a lot of advantages. There's Dallas Comic Con, and there's other cons like that that happen in and around the area. Unfortunately, you know, mortgage, children, car payments, <laughs> looking at my daughter, pointing at her. Mm. There is a reason why this is my one a year. Gotcha. And a lot of it is family. I, I have a responsibility, and I can't chase cons all over the United States. I can't even chase cons all over the East. So it's I got to pick what I'm doing. And I'm doing this, and yeah, I'm doing it for me, and that's okay because 364 days a year, I'm there for them. My one or two things I get to do a year are pretty much SCA-related. Reasonable. Go to events, usually because of not just for fun, but also because I've got some responsibility. I've got some job that I promised that I would do there. Nothing wrong with that. But just one year, I would like to try to make it to a con. If for nothing else, for the experience, and pick up something cool in the vendor area. Always the dice. <laughs> Always the dice. <laughs> Joy and I did years ago go to one when we were living in Colorado. It was a little one called Genghis Khan, which I was like, lovely name. But uh, what's that one dice company? Chessex. Chessex was there. Yeah. And they had a long wall of nothing but dice. Yeah. I wanted to walk up with just a army-sized tote bag, open up the top and say, load it. Uh <laughs> That is what it looks like I did for my dice purchases. Nice. Well, we didn't go for quantity that time we were there. We did go, I like this thing for quality. We picked up some real cool ones and uh, just like some personalized ones and some new ones for a game that we were going to be doing coming up. It's like, I don't know, dice, I always kind of think it was weird. I mean, you can have, how many dice do you actually need? All I mean, of them. All... <laughs> 
Brian's like, all of them, every single one. <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if you're still playing the Star Wars D6, you probably need the, the whole container full. That's a good point, actually. I don't think I've ever rolled more than like 16 for Star Wars D6 at a time. But still, that's that's a lot. Were you rolling damage for the Death Star? Somebody rolled a force point. Okay. And they had 8D and something. So, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was in the very last, the very last battle. Like, you are facing down the big bad evil guy, and you're either going to go out in a blaze of glory and die and say, oh, man, that was fantastic. Did, did or you, you're going to say, oh, I, I killed the Empire. Did I shoot the Ewok? No, you shot all the Ewoks. <laughs> Every single one. The species is dead thanks to that roll. As uh, I kept saying to some of my gamers, like, okay, we want to overthrow the Empire. Make a strength roll. <laughs> <laughs> Although, for serious, we had a D6 game in a fantasy setting, and the game was just a verbal war between me and the players. It was If there was any turn of phrase that you could use against the GM or use against the players, you use it. And, I mean, that was just the setting. Like, somebody said, I found a silver piece. Or I said, or they said, what did I find? I said, you found a silver piece. And so they, they made a motion like they were reaching down and picking up a gun and said, oh, whoa, look what I found. I found this awesome piece. And so then it was, the onus was on me to explain <laughs> why in a fantasy setting there's a firearm there made of silver. But I said, darkness has fallen. And they said, I'm going to lift it up. And I said, <laughs> make a strength roll. And they rolled into super heroic. And so they picked up the darkness. And they said, okay, I, I lifted the darkness. Um, I'm going to put it in my pocket. And I'm like, okay, so add the darkness into your inventory. <laughs> the very last climax of the campaign, they were like, they were in this huge field. They need, and they like, we need cover. She's like, I'm going to throw down the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you playing tune. <laughs> I, I think you just discovered, Mike, I think you could make that into a viable system. An RPG where anything just absurd like that is up for fair game. It, um, yeah, it, it definitely is. Misconstrued. Misconstrued. <laughs> misconstrued. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for us for this first episode. As much as I hate to extend it too much longer, I do have a zombie apocalypse strategy of the week. I was just about to throw it to you. Okay. Mike, hit us. What's the zombie apocalypse plan of the week? You know, this week, I think that the plan is getting one of those motocross dirt bikes and a cavalry saber. Now, I'm not terribly troubled by the fact that I don't have any experience with either, because I'm counting that the zombies don't, too. Okay. And so, you know, I think that my relative inexperience will probably uh, will probably best their limited experience with dirt bikes and cavalry sabers. At that point, it's it's just letting the good times roll. <laughs> you know what? That's what you should name your saber wielding apocalypse bike gang. Let the good times roll. I already am filling out the paperwork. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, guys, I think that wraps up our first show. I want to thank all of you listening in to what we hope is going to be the first of many, many podcasts. So from all of us at Geek at Arms, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. 
For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geekatarms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 